0: And so a lot of persons may be insured or uninsured or self-paying for their health care, but not realizing that even with you know a great health care plan when it comes to fertility, either evaluation, treatment, even to establish the diagnosis, they may not be covered under their health insurance plan. Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard. Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you.
1: So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Hello, and thank you for joining me on Fertility Cafe. I'm your host, Eloise Drain. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tia Jackson Bay to discuss disparities in fertility care in minority populations. There are particular barriers to caring for and noticeably poorer treatment outcomes for black and brown women. We're highlighting health disparities that prevent family building through fertility diagnostics, gynecological surgery, fertility preservation, egg, sperm, and embryo freezing, and infertility treatments like intrauterine insemination (IUI) and in vitro fertilization (IVF) for minorities. We'll be discussing the importance of reproductive justice and increasing access to fertility care for all. Dr. Tia Jackson-Bay is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist and board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist who cares for patients at RMA of New York's Brooklyn office. Her professional interests include physician-patient education, IVF outcome improvement, global public health, and mentoring unrepresented college and medical students on careers in medicine. Dr. Jackson Bay is passionate about reproductive justice and increasing access to fertility care for all. She was recently appointed a member of the newly formed ASRM Diversity Equity, and Inclusion Task Force, which will enhance opportunities in reproductive medicine for underrepresented minority populations and reduce health disparities in access to care. She is a talented surgeon and dedicated fertility expert who is focused on fertility preservation, IVF success, and great outcomes for her patients. Welcome, Tia. Thank you for joining me. Although I shared a bit about your bio, I'd like to start off by having my guests share a bit about themselves. So if you don't mind, yeah, share a bit about you
0: awesome well thank you so much for having me uh my name is dr tia jackson bay i'm a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist based in new york and so as part of my job i take I'm trained to take care of women as a gynecologist and obstetrician but then went on to do further subspecialization particularly in disorders that relate to fertility um, so the majority of the patients that we see are um, coming to us because they are not experiencing a pregnancy in the time frame that they ought to. So they could be um, infertile or just have questions about their fertility or have you know chronic conditions that may you know affect their fertility, things like uterine fibroids or endometriosis, or been told by a doctor before that this is something they need to kind of be cognizant of. So we may see them for those reasons as well.
1: Okay. So I know obviously the topic of this conversation for today is about healthcare disparities. Tell us about the barriers to fertility treatment in underserved, low-income, minority, LGBTQ communities. Like, What stands out to you as being the most important that we need to focus on to make change accessible?
0: Yeah, you know, one of the biggest... I think initial barriers is cost. Mm. Um, But to take one step before that, I think it actually is knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we encounter a lot of persons who don't realize that there's an issue for not achieving a pregnancy in one, two, three, five, ten 10 years. They may kind of have a suspicion or maybe they blame it on other things. Maybe they don't know the right persons to seek. They may have also been told by their doctors in error that they should just keep trying. And so that can be a huge deterrent in, in, uh, you know, in terms of them making it to our door in terms of fertility specialists. So just knowledge of the body, um, knowledge of, you know, the menstrual cycle for, you know, menstruating Mm -hmm. persons, understanding what it takes to achieve a pregnancy. And therefore, sometimes that can help you to know how to optimize your natural fertility or when things are going wrong and you may need to seek um, assistance. It could be a big part of it. You know, in terms of cost being a barrier, you know, infertility is one of the very few diagnoses that is not universally covered by health insurance. And so a lot of persons may be insured or uninsured or self-paying for their health care, but not realizing that. Even with you know a great healthcare plan, when it comes to fertility, either evaluation, treatment, even to establish a diagnosis, they may not be covered under their health insurance plan. And so, in some ways, that's you know it's very cruel in that they have this medical condition, their organs are not functioning the way that they should. And, you know, for whatever reason, they can't seek the treatments or even sometimes the evaluation to deal with that diagnosis.
1: Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to a point that you made about education, I think one of the things that we as a society need to do better at is even educating our children from young, because that is quite frankly where it needs to begin is it's not. You know, by the time you get into your 30s and your 40s, and now you're thinking about having children, it really is about having these discussions once you become a teenager and you know as a woman you start getting your um your period and 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 not just women this can't just be a woman thing right this needs to be an every person thing man woman whatever um but i mean how do we even get there like how do we And I know obviously you're not going to have the answer to all these questions, but I think that having uh, an opportunity to begin having these dialogues with individuals, you know, even with your own journey in your own education and deciding that you wanted to become an RE, how you know, how do we try to help educate our young children so that they are aware of like, what things do we need to even consider? Like, what should I what should I be telling my daughter or my son in, as their yeah. teenage years? This is, you know, something that we've been discussing
0: so much in recent years in terms of why is this part of, you know, sexual education left out? um i think the focus of a lot of kind of um, school or curricula based sexual education is all on pregnancy prevention mm-hmm. and in some places still very abstinence heavy without you know just a full appreciation of you know one day you're gonna want to have a family and this is how you do it this is you know the right time for intercourse in order to conceive um you know this is the right length of trying before seeking new treatment or or seeking an evaluation, or these are the kinds of things that could go wrong you know, part that's left out is about, you know, sexually transmitted infections, you know, as a young person can predispose you to infertility later on, particularly um, gonorrhea and chlamydia. And so, you know, it can be wound into the current curricula. I think there's just not enough of a focus on it as is, you know, there are some great um, activists in the infertility space who also advocate for, you know, telling the younger persons in their family Mm -hmm. about their own infertility struggle so that it doesn't come up as such a surprise you know 20 30 years from now and i think that that's incredibly remarkable too because you know there's something to be said for secrets and privacy even within a family Mm -hmm. to the point that other members of the family don't know what you're going through you know siblings not knowing oh are they struggling i don't know i don't ask um you know women or Persons not knowing what their parents had to go to in order to achieve pregnancy? Was there a history there that we should know about? Um, And so, those, you know, just I think in open discussions with Mm -hmm. their family members is is really important. You know, my mom was very open with me about like her reproductive history from early on. And maybe I just kind of tuned into it because I always had like a, you know, an interest in the health field. But I think even something like that is helpful just to let you know what the possibilities are and that it may not go as smooth as you imagine and so these are some things to kind of you know ask of your your physician your healthcare team or just to be aware of for yourself so i think definitely speaking Um, To persons who are close to you, if you're involved in any kind of community service or mentoring, um, have, you know, sexual health day, the same, you know, way that we want to teach particularly young menstruating persons about their menses and what does it mean, you know, take it the next step further and let them know that this is, you know, what this means in the grand scheme of things. And one day you may want children and this is when one way to pursue that. You know, another thing that's important is for young queer persons and trans persons to that someone is also talking to them about Mm -hmm. family building options for them as young people, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because They may need assistance or they may even need fertility preservation if they're considering transitioning. And just to make sure that they're aware of all of the options. you know, Things you want as a young person can be very different from what you want Mm -hmm. in your 30s or 40s. And -hmm. so someone should be planting the seed just to let them know what's available.
1: Well, that and I also think that we need to begin also having discussions and letting people know that they need to become their own advocates. Mm-hmm. And they need to be questioning everybody, physicians and, um, you know, whoever they have in their space that is um, giving them information or perhaps not giving them enough information and mm-hmm. deciding like, OK, I need to I have to become an advocate for myself because down the line, I'm the one who's going to have to deal with all the, the right. issues. So what do you tell somebody that, you know, as a physician about advocating for themselves when they're in front of their own physicians?
0: Yes, this is so important. And I think that it's important that persons know, one, that they have the right to health. You know, I think sometimes in our country, you can make it seem like healthcare care is a luxury, but it mm. is a human right. And so, you know, just to understand that yes, it does not matter of your education, your income, your, you know, legal status in this country, your marital status, your sexual orientation, your religious affiliation. You do have the right to be evaluated by a healthcare provider to have your your questions answered and heard. Those opportunities may be different based on where you live, and that's a very real thing, Um, but I do want persons to feel empowered in that way, is that this is something that you should expect, not feel like, you know, is um, outside of your reach. In terms of you know advocating for yourself, I think it, you know there are a few different things that come to mind. You know, sometimes it may be helpful to bring someone to a visit with you, either for comfort. Or for reassurance, or so they may just hear things differently than you do. They may remember, you know, different parts of the appointment different. Now, of course, this person may be privy to your health information, and so you have to make sure that it's someone who you're comfortable disclosing all of your health data in front of. But you know, is it a partner or a friend? I've had patients bring parents, um, or adult children, you know, just someone else. I think a buddy system sometimes can just be very reassuring in a, in an encounter that can be somewhat intimidating. Mm -hmm. You know, I think maybe having some questions available in advance is helpful so that even after, you know, the doctor kind of does their spiel or, you know, nurses or whatever, so that you can kind of have a reminder and maybe not be afraid to speak up and say, okay, you know, this is why I'm coming here. This is something I don't understand. Can you repeat that? or can you help me understand how we're gonna get from A to B? What is the timeline like? What is the commitment involved? You know, does my partner have to be involved or, or not? And so these are kind of important things to just remember. And the, the questions can be pretty much anything you want, but whatever it is that's important to you, it may be worthwhile to write them down in advance of your visit. You know, you can ask certain things before you arrive in terms of um, health insurance questions, whether or not your insurance is accepted, what happens if it's denied, you know, what is the cost out of pocket. A lot of times they may, you know, get in contact with that information as well, but sometimes I hate when patients have like sticker shock mm-hmm. from arriving to a visit mm-hmm. because they didn't know that maybe some aspect of it wasn't going to be covered and they may get all the way there and, you know, have traveled there and then they want to you know, leave because of that. And so sometimes it might be helpful to do a little bit of that research before the first visit. Um, And then other things I think, you know, which can be hard for different groups, and I definitely appreciate that is just to, you know, make your intentions known, like, Mm -hmm. if this is something that you're very committed to, if you're not feeling heard, if you're not feeling respected, you know, In some cases, instead of just changing course and never coming back to the practice, it might be helpful to give that feedback. Um, you know, physicians are humans too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're not perfect. You know, I think a lot of times it can be a lot of medical jargon that's used. There can be unconscious bias, which all humans have, but which is actually very pervasive in medicine and can affect your care and your outcomes and your treatment. And so sometimes just by, you know, addressing it, in a way that's comfortable for you, just can bring it into the consciousness of the healthcare team, and and maybe they can make some changes from there. It It may very well be that you choose to continue your care somewhere else. That's a possibility for you. But I think, you know, in, this struggle to really become a better healthcare system, we have to have that feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I would really encourage any person to make sure that you provide that, if that's your
1: experience. Well, that, and so touch base back onto this health disparity specifically, want to touch on the black and brown community. Mm -hmm. And I know that over the years, I have heard numerous times about families or individuals that have gone into the doctors and they've been complaining about certain things and the doctors are completely dismissive to what their issues are or their concerns are. One, why why do you feel there's such a healthcare disparity besides cost? Why do you feel that there's such a healthcare disparity in the black and brown community right now, because I mean, we are way more educated than you know our parents were and our grandparents were, but yet and still, we're still dealing with the same, maybe not the same, but we're definitely still dealing with a lot of the issues that they dealt with in there, you know, when they were trying to have children. Um, why do you still think that, that it's still prevalent?
0: Yeah, you know, there's, it's a definitely a multifaceted issue, and I don't like to really categorize so much. There are some things that, you know, kind of stand out to me. I think one of the biggest, and we talked a lot about knowledge, is not necessarily a knowledge base, but like an understanding mm. of what is, um, you know, to be expected, what is possible, what is kind of, um, a normal length of time to to try before seeking treatment. You know, one of the statistics that really stands out is a lot of times Black couples present to infertility care with a longer duration of infertility at first consult. So that means that, you know, for a couple that maybe was trying a year, the Black couple has typically been trying for twice as long. Mm. And so they may have been trying for two years before they seek treatment. And the reasons, you know, can be varied. Maybe they expressed concerns to physicians, and we're told that they should just keep trying. And so, referral patterns to subspecialists has been something that's been shown to be different for different races, whether there are assumptions on the, the physician's uh, behalf of affordability. Or, you know, to this day, there are certain groups, including, you know, us <laughs> mm-hmm. that don't realize that infertility affects brown and black couples. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, also kind of a, a big issue in itself is this idea of that's not an issue for these people, or if it is, well, they can't afford the treatment anyway. So I'm not going to send them. So those are, you know, some of the biggest things in terms of like referral. But then also, you know, just an understanding of what's normal. I do have, you know, a lot of um, interactions with, you know, patients or even just, you know, people who we meet along the way who say, well, you know, I was trying, and I'm just really kind of leaning on the Lord. And you know, I call this the praying for a baby. Mm-hmm. You can continue to pray, mm-hmm. but I definitely want you to come in and be seen. You know, I also want you to pray for the right doctor who's going to listen to you and who's going to address your needs. And so, you know, I think sometimes, you know, either fear mm-hmm. of what they'll be told when they come to the doctor, um, stigma. You know, uh, even from their partner, from within their family, within their social network, you know, for maybe having issues conceiving, a lack of understanding because no one else is talking about it. And so feeling like, am I the only one? Mm-hmm. Why did this happen to me? Everyone else is, you know, having children with no issue. Or even sometimes I had my first children, you know, child or, or children with no issues. I don't understand why it's so difficult now. Mm-hmm. But all of those things should be reasons why you're seeking treatment um, or at least seeking evaluation to figure out what's going on so you know there's there's some kind of understanding cost certainly plays a huge huge role Mm -hmm. as i mentioned with infertility diagnoses not often being covered by health insurance right now there's only 19 states out of the 50 u.s states that have some sort of legislative mandate to say that Infertility treatment should be covered by health plans in that state. But even within those mandates, there are huge, gaping loopholes, including, you know. Sometimes the evaluation is covered, but not the treatment. Mm-hmm. Sometimes one type of treatment is covered, but not you know, one of the most efficacious treatments we have available, which is in vitro fertilization. Only about five or six states include specifically include in vitro fertilization as part of that insurance mandate. And so you can imagine that leaves a lot of persons without inf- insurance coverage for infertility treatment. You know what that does is it creates a huge chasm in terms of who can get treatment and who can't because the infertility treatments um, can be very expensive out of pocket. Something like in vitro fertilization can run tens of thousands of dollars for one try, and we know that sometimes to be successful you may have to try more than once. Um, just the evaluation and of itself it may require you know out of pocket payments or multiple physicians visits, which can be you know disruptive to some person person's work schedule um, or distance traveled in order to get to the clinic. The clinics at this time tend to be located where patients can pay in cash. Right. So they're located in cities. They're located, you know, on the coasts. Um, there's not a lot of rural representation. Midwestern, you know, huge swaths of the country and, and populations are not, you know, adequately served or have to drive maybe more than a hundred miles to seek care at a fertility clinic. And so these are some really significant barriers to care overall. You know, not having that insurance coverage and then also having clinics situated in communities that are more affluent. to to tend to be more white, tend to be more urban, that certainly it plays a big role as well.
1: Mm -hmm. And I know we keep talking about um, health disparities, obviously, in the US here, where clearly we're here. But you've traveled to Honduras, South Africa, um, Ghana, Tanzania for various projects in women's reproductive health. Um, What did you learn in your travels about universal disparities in women's health care, specifically reproductive care?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to learn from all different you know, areas. I think some things it makes you reflect on some things that the US does well and then some things that the US does not do very well, you know, taking care of a woman through um, pregnancy early postpartum period were not so good at that actually mm-hmm. despite really high amount of money spent per person on healthcare you know dollars you know that actual social support you know you see in the news recently we're you know really looking for a national kind of family medical leave and see how hotly debated that mm-hmm. is whereas that's just that's basic you know care yep. for yep. families uh, and know for it. um women and children you know yourself as a mom like mm-hmm. you know to go back to work in less than a month uh, because you don't have enough leave or you Feel like your job, you know, may be lost. It's just,
1: it's in incredibly places,
0: heartbreaking. Yeah, in that some places this, you that can't even still debating
1: this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some places you can't even bring your child to the daycare because they don't even accept a child before six weeks old. Yeah, I mean, it's
0: that's something that you know kind of really stands out to me. But you know, in terms of what i see in other places you know it runs the gamut you know i think overall we still have to really work hard to have women's health valued Mm -hmm. um at the same as everyone else Mm -hmm. right so this you know particular concerns of women in other places may not be as highly regarded but you know there is some hope there i think fertility concerns bring about a whole nother dynamic in the sense that fertility is often blamed on women, mm-hmm. um, without a real understanding that yes, it takes two. There is equal contribution from male um, factors and female factors for infertility. But because women, you know, carry pregnancies, the lack of a pregnancy is often blamed on women, and so that can have really significant um, social, cultural, and actually safety. Implications on women around the world. You know, if they're unable to conceive or to have successful pregnancies, you know, they can be abused, they can be shunned, they can be, you know, um, in some sense kind of abandoned by families. And it's, you know, like a divorce, but left without anything. And that, you know, it just has. Tremendous health, mental health, safety, economic implications. And so, you know, improving the understanding that yes, this is not just a woman's issue, this is a male and female issue. And a lot of times it actually can be both. Is, is important to really kind of get the word out there worldwide.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, reaching into your your experience as a, a gynecologist and especially right now with women and dealing with the maternal, the high maternal fetal deaths that we're having now in the U.S. I mean, w- why do you think that is and it's not all of a sudden, clearly, it's definitely going up instead of down. Why do you think that especially, I mean, let's look at this country, right? And all of the capabilities and the possibilities that we have, like we're going the wrong direction.
0: Well, I think it's it's a few different factors in terms of why for infertility rates are increasing. That's what Ma- you mean. The
1: maternal fetal
0: deaths? Oh, maternal mortality. Sorry, yes. So, you know, there are still some pervasive issues. You know, one of the most important is the role of systemic racism mm. and what we call unconscious bias and conscious bias means that you know you may form opinions uh, you may act differently you may think differently about different groups and it may or may not be something that you actually recognize you know we've probably all been socialized and trained to think okay you know, to recognize patterns. You see brown skin, this is what this means. You see, you know, dark skin, this is what this means. But unfortunately, if, you know, that's something that we're realizing is ingrained in medicine and is actually held by medical providers, that can mean uh, very serious consequences. And so, you know, that plays a big role in terms of who is recognized as actually having a medical emergency during pregnancy or in a postpartum period. If you think that they're drug seeking, which is something that you typically hear of of African-American persons. If you think that they're being dramatic or histrionic um, instead of really listening to their concerns, which is sometimes is is explained of Latinx women. You know, these are very important things that you have to kind of nip in the bud because it can mean life or death for some people. There have been studies that have shown that racial concordance between physicians and patients actually makes a difference. And this is something that's been very hard to get the medical community to understand. But whether it means that the patients feel more comfortable and they disclose more and they are, you know, more in tune and therefore not shying away because they feel more comfortable with a provider that looks like them, or if it's just the provider, you know taken an extra step to listen? Do they speak the language? Do they come from a similar community? Do they, you know, understand some of the social constraints on health that maybe um, a provider who's not in that community doesn't understand. And so these are things that can, you know, make a huge impact. And unfortunately we aren't there at that point yet. And, you know, they may play a role in the increased maternal mortality. You know, there are other factors too. There are always going to be health, absolute health factors as a population we're all having uh, children later in life and so that kind of skews things a little Mm -hmm. bit in terms of maybe having pregnancies and starting pregnancies with you know different kinds of chronic illness than we ever have before but you know, I think we really have to lean into what are the structural issues that are being recognized. Um, you know, are we recognizing hemorrhage early enough? Are we recognizing um, disorders of hypertension and pregnancy soon enough to act? and are we treating patients appropriately? And, you know I hope in the time since these um, the CDC reported this increase in maternal mortality specifically for uh, minorities that a lot of these changes are being made not just at the big academic hospitals but even smaller hospitals who have less deliveries and at even like birthing centers.
1: I mm-hmm. know uh, one of the concerns right now too, obviously um, is getting the COVID vaccine. And, um, you know, there's definitely people on both sides, and yeah. um, of, you know, it's going to affect their fertility if they get the vaccine. And, you know, even my own family members are just like, no, no, because if I get the vaccine, then it's going to affect my fertility and I'm not going to be able to have children anymore. And this is exactly what, you know, the government wants because they're trying to. Create another Tuskegee experiment. Um, so yeah, I've very recently heard that one too. Yeah,
0: so, you know, it's it's really hard. I think, you know, I definitely understand both sides. As a physician, I you know, I've seen the devastation of COVID to see to even just think about the sheer number of persons that have lost their life to it, but even more persons who've been infected and have had, you know, these long ICU stays who are now you know experiencing this long COVID syndrome with neurologic impairment, respiratory impairment that, you know, we have no idea how this is going to look, you know, five, 10 years from now. Um, and so there's this urgency to one, get the virus contained. But then, two, to protect us, And you know, the, the vaccines that are available are highly effective um, in preventing severe illness and death. You know, they do not take away the chance that you may get COVID. But, you know, to prevent severe illness that you don't have to be hospitalized, you don't have to be intubated, you don't have to, you know, run your organs to the brink of failure um, or even, you know, unfortunately, sustained death is a significant, you know, um finding. And I think that's worth, you know, but vaccine hesitancy is, is a big issue. And I think this has really kind of cracked open this Pandora's box that we won't be able to close in that. There is a lot of mistrust of the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, due to you know our past history in this country, due to a lot of just inaccurate information that we saw over the last you know, four to five years with social media and just inaccuracies on social media and how quickly it can spread. It's hard to know who to believe and it's hard to know to trust. And so I do sympathize with that. But, you know, one thing is that I think you know, we've tried as physicians to get as much good information out there as possible in terms of the benefits, the stone cold benefits of um, COVID vaccination. It does not affect your fertility. This has been proven in you know multiple studies to date. We don't have you know how it'll affect you for the rest of your life, right. but we do have short term data that says that it's safe. It's effective. And there are no um uh, longstanding detrimental outcomes that would, you know, outweigh the benefits of, of potentially taking it now and avoiding that consequence of, of severe COVID infection or death. So, you know, we're at this point now, it's a little bit of a tipping point because we want to, we want to just do what's right and you know at this point in the game vaccination is the way forward so Mm -hmm. you know i really encourage anyone who's still on the fence or has questions to just you know try to engage you know either health professionals (laughs) try to stay off of social media
1: (laughs) or dr (laughs) Um, google
0: yes right but you know just try to go to sources that you trust you know the cdc actually has a very nice Layout of the vaccinations, of the studies that are available, kind of very plain data on what has, you know, what the COVID pandemic has looked like so far. And that's something that's available to the public. You know, asking your physicians, ask your pharmacists because the pharmacists are given the vaccinations now as well. Um, And and maybe start in there.
1: What about uh, for women who are already pregnant and are considering um, getting vaccinated?
0: Yes, the recommendation now is to to continue vaccination in pregnancy. So, if you are completely unvaccinated, we would highly recommend COVID vaccination in pregnancy. We know that it is safe; it does not have detrimental impacts on the pregnancy. You can have, you know, the same side effects as someone who's not pregnant: sore arm. You can have headaches. You know, a day or so of you know fevers or something like that. Um, but they're very self limited, and overall, it's been very well tolerated the vaccine has been for pregnant women you know the recommendation is to go ahead and get it it's also for you know if it's your first shot or second shot or single dose but now also for the boosters Mm -hmm. Um, the american college of obstetrics and obstetricians and gynecologists as well as um, multiple different um organizations including the cdc center for disease control Are recommending that pregnant women get boosted as quickly as possible. What we found is that, you know, um, COVID can be particularly devastating in pregnant women. And I think it even hit worse during this delta uh, wave of particularly of unvaccinated persons, unvaccinated pregnant persons. So, um, you know, COVID vaccination during pregnancy increases the risk of hospitalization, increases the risk of intubation, increases the risk of needing to deliver. Therefore, sometimes there can be preterm delivery because the delivery may be needed to help with the resuscitation of the mother. Um, And then also it does increase the risk of COVID-related death during pregnancy. Um, And so by being vaccinated, you're not just saving yourself but potentially saving your unborn child From infection or any negative sequelae. So it's important. You know, we understand that, you know, people are nervous, uh, but all the data that has come back so far is good. And so I want you to hear clearly that it is highly recommended to get the COVID vaccination or your booster during pregnancy.
1: Well, um, any last words of wisdom you'd like to share? Um, You know, the most
0: important thing to me is if if someone has questions about their fertility status, about, you know, trying to create a family, about starting a family even on their own, um, that they seek, you know, look for the doctors, look for the providers that can help you to reach your goals you know, sometimes I have patients who said, you know, it took me a long time to make this appointment. And I'm always like, I'm just glad you're here. Mm -hmm. You know, now we can figure things out and hopefully move forward. And so that's really important overall. So my, you know, request is always that you just don't delay, you know, in in the infertility world, time is actually very important. Um, And so the sooner that we can see you and get an evaluation, you know, potentially start treatment if treatment is needed, then um, the sooner we can get you on the road to building your family.
1: Yep, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And it has been a pleasure speaking with you. And I'm certain that our listeners will have learned a great deal and we'll definitely be sure to add your information into our show notes. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Awesome. I hope you found this discussion helpful as you weigh your next steps. We would love for you to rate us. So if you haven't yet, go to your listening platform of choice and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can follow Fertility Cafe on its Instagram and Facebook channel at Family Inceptions. We'd also love you to share Fertility Cafe with friends and family members who would benefit from the information shared. Join us next week for another conversation on modern family building. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in The Fertility Café. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg
0: donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.